Welcome to today's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. You can follow me on Twitter, by the way. It's not just a half-hour program. If you like this content, you want to get a conversation going, you can always follow me on Twitter and get involved. At JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle, at the at symbol, JakeJakeNY. Um, not a topic I'm going to talk about on the show today, uh, at least not directly, but I have a poll up on my Twitter feed today. Uh, you may have noticed, maybe from reading the news or just walking in the streets of New York City, there are a lot of department stores and retail stores, but department stores especially, that are shutting down. So I have a poll up asking you what you think we should do with these empty spaces. You got three choices, and you can always tweet with a comment uh, if you don't like my three choices, if you want to try a fourth choice. Um, the three choices are, hey... Find another department store chain. Find another big retail chain to come fill it in. Second choice I gave was, let's turn them into residential apartments. You know, we all know that there's a huge demand, as always, for Manhattan and uh, pretty much in a lot of the other boroughs, too, for residential real estate. So why don't we just convert them? That's my second choice. And my third choice is sort of tongue-in-cheek, but unfortunately not completely tongue-in-cheek, and that is maybe we should just... Um, make them into Amazon warehouses. I mean, if it's Amazon that's forcing, if it's the internet and Amazon that's forcing these department stores to close, uh, maybe we should just make Amazon pick up the slack so that we don't have empty buildings in our neighborhoods. That can be pretty scary. You know, even if the economy is going really well, if you have a bunch of empty buildings in, in a neighborhood or in, a, in an area of the city, uh, that often invites uh, bad behavior, other kinds of problems, and, and, and can scare people away. So, those are the three choices on my poll. Feel free to tweet your own choice. Uh, again, at JakeJakeNY is my tweet. A little bit of a different um, thing for me today, but I'm, I, I like these Twitter polls, and I think I'd, I'd like to hear more from, from my followers. That's not the topic today, though, on Novak Now. I just wanted to let you know that I do have a Twitter feed, and there's plenty of interaction available there. I do get back to everyone who's not being nasty, mean, or annoying, uh, and I do like to have, have the conversation started. Today, though, I wanted to talk about something that sounds like it's coming completely out of left field. Uh, but for those of you who have been following me, not only on Twitter, but on some of the other places where I write and I get published, I have been very much interested in the themes and, and, and storylines of a particular HBO series called Westworld. And, and based on the final episode of season two, which aired a few weeks ago, or maybe even just two weeks ago, um, I have a strong feeling the show will not come back. It really felt like they tied it up in a bow after two seasons, which is too bad because the 20 episodes were very good for the most part. Uh, I do have some criticisms, and I'll get into those. But this has been a very interesting interesting show. Now, what do I like about it? There's plenty of things to, to like or dislike about any particular program. But what I've liked about Westworld from the very beginning is clearly, clearly the writers and the creators of this show are at least amateur students of philosophy, theology, and basic human questions that really shouldn't always be so ignored by the entertainment industry. The entertainment industry uh, has a lot of things going for it, a lot of things not going for it. I think despite the fact that it might make an individual show or movie might make money every once in a while, the fact that they can grab a lot of attention from people just from being on a popular platform like HBO or going into a movie, uh, a movie studio is a huge advantage. And as a good friend of mine and very successful screenwriter, Robert Avrek, has told me and written a number of times, 
there is a moral compass. There's a moral framework for every script that's written. In other words, when you hear a writer saying, oh, I'm just writing a movie, it's just fiction, it's not real, it, it's not true. The truth is, is that they are trying to make a moral statement. Sometimes they're trying to make a moral statement by writing something that they feel is very immoral so that people will be uh, induced to, to see the, the wrong in their storyline. And so it doesn't necessarily mean the writer believes what, they, what, they're, what he or she is writing. But we shouldn't believe that they're just sort of having a fun hypothetical game with the script. So when Westworld, the first, so first of all, let me just say spoiler alert. If you, if you are interested in watching Westworld and you don't want it to be ruined at all, um, hold on to this, uh, this recording on the archive. Please listen to it after you have watched those shows because I am going to do some, some, spoiler, some spoilers here. It has been a couple of weeks since Westworld, like I said, wrapped up its second season. So you've had plenty of time to catch up if you are a big fan of the show. And I, don't, I won't be giving away exactly what happened. For example, if you're just one or two episodes behind finishing up the second season, this will not spoil that for you. Um, but anyway, uh, I was very interested last year when the show Westworld came out, because I immediately saw some Jewish philosophy in there, some Talmudic philosophy in there. And again, I don't know if it's deliberate. And, I, and very often when I've asked writers of television shows and movies, and I've had an opportunity by being in the news media for so many years to, to meet them and discuss stuff with them over the years. So this isn't just like a tweet that I sent out. Uh, I, I've had conversations with screenwriters and creators of shows and creators of movies many times. And very often... I have come to the conclusion that they themselves are not aware of the messages that they that they have in their in their script. Now, that does not contradict what I said just a moment ago about how every script and every movie ha and every movie and every TV show has a moral moral fabric fabric to it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're consciously aware of it. One of the best examples of that I think is J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling ostensibly is a big leftist member of the Labor Party very big Trump uh, enemy. You just think she was left wing all the way down the line. But anyone who has seen the, the, the Order of the Phoenix or read the book, The Order of the Phoenix, knows that it is absolutely a conservative manifesto, especially when you take a look at the last hundred years or so of Western history. Uh, it is very similar to the critiques that you hear from conservatives about countries in Europe and in the United States ignoring the Nazi threat as it started and pretending it wasn't there. And it's very similar to today, Europe and some people in the United States as well, ignoring the threat from Islamic terrorism, refusing to even say its name. Very similar to the whole do not say his name, don't say Voldemort's name kind of thing. I don't think that J.K. Rowling is secretly a conservative in, a, in her conscious mind. I think that she's just very intelligent and she understands these things. And she's just not being self-aware enough to realize that she's actually promoting some very important conservative and I think decent principles. Uh, and she thinks she's a leftist. I've met a lot of people like that over the years who write incredibly conservative uh, or traditional type entertainment scripts and movies and TV shows, and they don't even realize they're doing it. Um, I could write an entire column about that, and maybe I will one day. But my point is, is that it's not always conscious. But what I saw in Westworld season one was an incredible parallel to what we learn in Jewish philosophy and Jewish thought about what it is to be a human being. Now, if you know the plot of Westworld, the idea of Westworld is this is a futuristic theme park where people can go to 
a very large island that looks like the Old West filled with robots who are so similar to human beings and that they you really can't tell the difference. The only way you can tell the difference is if you ask them, are you a, quote, a host of the park or are you a guest? In other words, you can't tell. They're, they're so realistic. A technology, so this is set 20, maybe 30 years in the future where the technology is good enough to make human robots, human-looking robots that are so lifelike and so real that no one can tell the difference. And so it becomes this, this place where you can have a lot of fun you can do a lot of good things and a lot of bad things and not really hurt any real person. And I'm going to put that in quotations, real person. But what the first season really spends a lot of time explaining is that over the course of decades in this theme park, these otherwise sentient robots, these robots are don't really know that they're robots. They think that they're living beings, regular living beings. And over the course of many, many years of the guests coming to these, uh, coming to this theme park and treating them mostly poorly, because, you know, it's, 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 it's Westworld, people are shooting them, people are treating them like they're cowboys and Indians type stuff, saloons, the, uh, you, you can get the violence of the Old West and you can sort of extrapolate from that, you can imagine. And the show brings out this premise that over decades of the pain that these robots, and I'm going to call them the hosts, the hosts experience, they become real. And this is very similar, very similar to the Talmudic, and I think it's also in some other Jewish philosophers who wrote about it, the idea that the pain that the Jewish people, that the Israelite people went through as slaves in Egypt is what really made them Jews. You know, you had somebody like Abraham and you had the forefathers and all that. But as a Jewish people, other than just a, a family, to become more than just a family, an extended family of those 70 people who went down to Egypt during the famine to live with Joseph and in Eretz Goshen, we know that whole story. But to really become a people, they had to go through this incredibly painful experience. That was what was required. And to really become a human being even before you become a people, there is a discussion in the Talmud, and again, among other Jewish philosophers, about the pain of childbirth and how that really is what makes us who we are. In other words, good things come from, or at least higher responsibilities, higher consciousness comes from enduring pain or experiencing pain, either individually or as a group. So last year, this is not this year, last year during the first season of Westworld, which wrapped up very conveniently for me around the time of Passover, uh, I wrote a column uh, on my friend, again, Robert Abrek, the, the Hollywood screenwriter, has a wonderful blog called Seraphic Secret, and you can find it by looking under Google under Seraphic Press. Remember, the title of the blog is Seraphic Secret, but the uh, URL, if you want to type it in, is like seraphicpress.com. And I wrote something called the Westworld Haggadah. Because I found it to be very, you know, a, a modern take on the Exodus story, the story of the Jewish people leaving Egypt, coming out of Egypt and, and, and feeling that pain as a group for 400 years of slavery, making us into a people. Before then, we're just an extended family. Before then, we're just a family. There's really not much there. Not the family isn't important, but we're not a people. We're not the people of Israel yet. And yet going through that experience, that collective 400-year slavery experience is what makes us something. And there was a very similar aspect to that in season one. And basically the, the hosts, the, the robots, emancipate themselves to some extent at the end of the first season in a very violent uprising. 
So that's where we were, were at the end of the first season. And I thought I spent the year in between wondering, what are they going to do to as an encore here? Are they going to show the emancipated hosts out in the real world? Are we going to have a 40 year like travel like the Jewish people did in the desert? The answer is B. That's kind of what they did in the second season. They did a long season where one of the plots, it was not the main plot, but one of the plots was that the hosts, these, these emancipated, are looking for the promised land or the, as they call it on the show, the valley beyond. So they did keep a little bit of that Exodus narrative continuing in Westworld season two. But Westworld season two actually took a different turn, which brought us to yet another part of Jewish philosophy and, and Talmudic teaching and also brought us to really the forefront of some major issues in the news right now and what has been a major, also a major running theme in our political and cultural world right now. Uh, Westworld season two, I want to just do one disclaimer for those of you who are thinking about watching it or maybe you saw season one or you haven't seen it at all. It is overly violent. And I use the word overly on purpose. It was too violent. I think that uh, you know, this is a, an entirely different discussion that someone can have about Hollywood right now. The amount of violence coming out of Hollywood productions right now is over the top. And by the way, I'm not trying to be a ninny. I'm not trying to be a spoiled sport. I'm not trying to be a, you know, a grumpy old man about this. I like action and I like a little bit of shoot 'em up here and there. Believe me, I'm not against that. But it is so over the top. I went to a movie with my family maybe six weeks ago. And there were the usual 10 or 11 trailers for upcoming movies before the feature started. And every one of them was incredibly violent. I mean, just 30 or 40 killings in each of the trailers. And not just shootings, maimings, broken limbs, the whole thing. And these were the trailers, my friend. This is this is the, the trailer, you know? Um, and it leads me to, again, that can be an entirely different discussion you can have where at the same time, these are the people in Hollywood who are lecturing us about gun violence and gun culture, they're the ones who created it and and seem to make money off of it. And then one of the actors, who is generally a good actor, Ethan Hawke, made a statement that I don't think was completely true, but I understand where he's coming from. He made the point that without gun violence in a movie, he doesn't think it'll ever get made. In other words, if you write a script without gun violence in it, and it's anything other than a romantic comedy or a kid's movie, it's not going to get made in Hollywood. I don't think he's 100% right. I also don't think he's right on the merits. I think it could be different in Hollywood. But he's got a point. <laughs> he still has a point in that, boy, it sure seems like you that the Hollywood producers and the studios are unable to make movies without some degree of violence. So season two of Westworld, I think some violence was necessary to, to advance the story. I mean, let's be honest, if they're going to do a parallel to the Exodus story or some of the other issues I'm going to talk about, violence is necessary. You know, re read your Torah and your stories of, of the Jewish people, you know, traveling through the desert. There's, there's a lot of war and gore there, but there's no way around that. But they overdid it. They overdid it with its graphics nature. They overdid it with the new, you know, the, the numerous, at, at, you know, uh, incidents of violence. They overdid it in season two. So I wanted to give that warning to anyone who might have an issue with that. However, they, they went to some very interesting places in the second season of Westworld that, again, first they continued that Exodus narrative where they're, they're the, the hosts, those those now sentient um, uh, emancipated robots are looking for the valley beyond this, you know, kind of like a province promised land in a similar, in a parallel to the, the, the Jews traveling through the desert for 40 years going, trying to get to Israel. But they also, but then they really focused, but that was, like I said, that became sort of a subplot. The main plot sort of changed. 
And the main plot changed very fortuitously for them into something very similar to what's going on in the news right now. And that is this. So uh, there's a hook in the story. It turns out that the people who have been going to Westworld, the real people, the humans who've been going to Westworld for all these years have actually been watched by the company. Every little thing that they have done has been recorded into a massive data center and all their decisions and likes and dislikes are all recorded. Sound familiar? Sound like something that Facebook and Google are doing? Uh, well, that's exactly what happened with this very lucky situation for them, I think for the writers, because they were putting together this show before a lot of these data breach stories came out. That said, anyone who's been watching Facebook over the last 10 years knows that this has been the case over there. I've been talking to teams at more than two news organizations that I've worked at over the last two years, and I've been, I've been pounding the table on this for years and saying to people that no, Facebook's data sharing is not some unfortunate side effect or a slight mistake from their business model. Facebook's data sharing is their business model. This is how they make money. Now they can show me all the accounting books in the world that say, oh no, 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 it's advertising dollars, it's advertising dollars. The fact is they don't get the advertising dollars unless they're also handing that advertiser, those advertisers are personal data. Stay with me here because this is important to, to understand how important this is and how the con what the connotations are of all of this. So again, just as that story is breaking, the Westworld plot sort of for season two sort of starts to flower and it becomes clear that this is going to be their hook for season two, which is that the, the human guests who have been acting uh, violently, uh, showing a lot of sexual immorality and everything is, is going on at Westworld and they think it's okay because they're just dealing with robots, right? With, with really realistic looking human, uh, humanistic robots. But it's all been recorded. Now, at first, when the story kind of comes out in, in the plot, it makes you think, oh, this is a corporation that runs this theme park and they're going to blackmail the guests. They're going to send that data to loved ones, family members, employers, and show them what kind of immoral, scary things they've done in the park over the years. But it turns out to be something very different. It turns out to be something very, very different. It turns out the reason why the park is recording everything that the human guests do is so that they can go to these guests later in life and say to them, we have all the data on your preferences, on the way that your brain works. And we are going to use that to create a realistic version of you so that you can live forever. When you become elderly and sick, we will transfer whatever parts of you we can along with this computer data so we can basically program you like a computer and you will live forever. You will feel like you're living forever. You will have consciousness in this new machine like you that we've created that will be look completely like a human being. Sounds great, right? The problem is it doesn't work. They show us in a number of instances that starting with the CEO of the company who dies uh, apparently before the, the show starts in a, in a different timeline, that they've tried hundreds of times to basically resurrect him using the data they have. And sometimes it works for 30 days, sometimes it works for a little longer, but in general, at some point, this human-like continuation, living forever aspect doesn't work. It breaks down and it malfunctions and, and they can't really figure out why and they're keeping, and they keep trying. And 
that's the way things stand until really the very end of Westworld season two, where we find out that the reason it's not working and follow me here, this is very important because it brings us back to today's today's news or the news of, 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 of this general period right now. The reason why it's not working is not because the data is faulty, not because they don't have enough information. They let us know that the reason why this isn't working is because there's too much data. That basically human beings are very simple creatures. We can really know what you're going to choose in almost any situation after a very short amount of time of, of observation or a very little amount of background information about you. And these reincarnated, for lack of a better word, machine-based human models of ourselves are breaking down because they have too much data. They're overloaded. And it's not working. And boy, did a light bulb go over my head when I heard that. Because then I realized what's going on in Westworld Season 2 and what they're trying to say. For those of you who are not following this very closely, and you'd be excused if you don't because some people haven't caught on to this, even though it's really very prevalent in a lot of discussions right now. And again, you're listening to Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, your host, talking today about Westworld, the Talmud, the Torah, and where this fits into our political and cultural situation right now. If you can believe it, I'm going to tie this all together. But this whole idea in Westworld Season 2 that humans are so simple, we're so simple creatures, our choices are really very easy to guess. And that's the reason why having too much data on a human being was malfunctioning the robots that they meant to replace us or, or allow us to live forever in some form of consciousness. The reason why that's so important is because there's a debate going on. There's been a long-time debate, and I would actually call it a campaign. There's been a campaign going on in our universities, in some of our political discourse, certainly in the culture of what we would call some of our elitist chattering classes about how humans really don't have free will, about how achievement is overrated and an illusion. Achievement is really just luck. And how we need to adjust our political society to that reality that they believe is real. They believe that when you really look at all the data on any kind of human person, we really don't have free will. Of course, this is a, a true pillar of Jewish thought, that we have free will. That God, God gives us free will to do with what we please, and we will be rewarded and punished based on what we do with those free choices. No, 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 says the elite. The elite says, no, there's really more evidence right now that there is no free choice. The amount of, you know, if you take a look at the data of any given person, we can pretty much know what they're going to do. In other words, you don't really have free choice. And since you don't have free choice, any achievement anybody has is just luck. Either you were born into a rich family or you were born into a situation where you'll be nurtured more. It's all luck. And one of the leading, quote, thinkers of the it's all luck theory is a professor named Robert Frank, not to be confused with the Robert Frank from the old Wall Street Journal and from CNBC who writes about the wealthy, different Robert Frank, a professor Robert Frank, whose main contribution to the world of scholarship is that everything is luck. We should stop rewarding and feting and celebrating rich people and successful people and great athletes and all that because it's just luck. Very little achievement involved. Of course, he's a professor in a college. He, he teaches at Cornell. He's taught at a lot of other places, too. And I've always 
wanted to ask him on live TV, if you believe everything is luck, how come you give grades in your classes? If everything's luck, what's the point of grades? Just give everybody an A or an F. So I'm sure he wouldn't be able to answer that sufficiently, but that's just a, it's not even a joke. I mean, honestly, if you believe it's all luck, then why do you have your position? Why don't you give back your paycheck? Why do, and why do you give grades to students? Why should they bother doing the reading? It's all luck. Uh, I'm sure he'll have a very nuanced answer to that, but not satisfactory. So why do I bring this up? Why is this coming into, into play? And by the way, I, I've even had very religious Orthodox Jewish people ask me that question. They, they are not decided on the, on, on the game. But I've had them say, you know, I, I, I did an interview recently with a very successful, very Orthodox son of a very famous rabbi, uh, real estate baron who told me that he's made all of his money based on big data, really, really focusing on big data. And he says when he really focuses on big data and when he thinks about what, how that applies to human beings, he is in a state of doubt about whether or not we have the whether we really have choice. And I gave him an answer that he actually liked, which was that the idea is the Jews, starting in the Torah and then continuing into the Talmud, understood very, very clearly that without the idea of free choice, without the idea of meritocracy, society breaks down. Not just the Jewish community. No society can really succeed if the general consensus among the people is, eh, try, don't try, doesn't matter. Which is essentially what so why socialism is so, so alluring to a lot of people. People believe that it's all luck. If people believe that all success is luck, and it's all about who you were born, how you were born, that kind of thing. Nothing, no, no, nothing due to your own efforts. Then why shouldn't we all have a ceiling and a, and a floor on how much we can earn and live by? Because it's just not fair. But starting in the Torah, and of course going through the Talmud, the Jews understand that's a recipe for disaster. And you look at socialist societies like Venezuela, I think they've got a point. Now, it may never be fully attainable. We may never reach, and I don't think we will at least not until the Messiah comes, right? We may never reach a point where everybody's efforts are fairly re rewarded and the people who don't try are fairly punished, whatever you want to call it. But the Jews understood way back many thousands of years ago and then, of course, continuing into today that unless you create a society where you're striving for that, where you're striving for meritocracy, where you're striving for the idea of free will and letting people know that they do have a choice, even though you may not take it, even though 99% of humans... When you know the big data, we'll do what we expect them to do and not make the right choice all the time or not make the right choice at critical times or a better choice. But that doesn't matter because you're trying to create a better society. And if one out of 100 people who believes in the idea of free will makes the better choice for himself and for others, then you have a better society. If nobody does that, you're going to get worse and worse as, as a society. And the Jews understood that a long time ago. And they continue that idea in the Talmud where they started to focus a little bit more on the doing of the commandments, on the following of the commandments over and above just faith. Now, faith in God is important in Judaism, but it's just not as important as it is in Christianity or even in Islam. Because in Judaism, the, the, the rabbis understood that without, for example, without a temple in Jerusalem, without Jewish sovereignty, which thank God is back now in Israel, they understood that just believing in stuff is going to be hard. People go through hardships in life, even if their temple isn't destroyed or their government isn't destroyed. And if it's all faith, faith, faith all the time, then who knows whether you're going to choose the right thing. So the rabbis understood that 
creating a list of, of mitzvot, of commandments to follow was very, very important. And there, But with the understanding that we're all going to remain sinners, we're all going to remain imperfect, but that doesn't mean we don't strive for something better. Otherwise, society breaks down. Civilization breaks down if we tell people, you know what, we're all just simple like machines. I know what you're going to do anyway. There's no point in getting all this data about you. We know what you're going to do. We know that you're mostly lucky if you've succeeded and mostly unlucky if you haven't. I mean, imagine what kind of, just imagine if a classroom were our incubator for an entire society and a teacher came into the classroom and gave that kind of message out. I know you're going to get an A, Johnny. Sarah, I know you're going to get a B, first day of school. Why would anyone even bother to do anything? And then things like basic pillars of that class would break down. And same thing with society. Would the guys who clean our, who pick up our garbage and, and work our sewage and get and make our water clean, could we really, really hope that they would stay motivated if the whole idea of it's just luck and we know what you're going to do anyway, we're out there? I don't know. I would be really worried about that. Society only works when we believe that there's something going on here. So with all due respect to the very talented producers and writers of Westworld season two and Westworld season one, they missing, they're missing something here. Unfortunately, I feel like they've added to this dangerous discussion in our society right now about the idea of not really having free will and the idea of us being very predictable machines. Civilization doesn't work that way. And even if it's true of most of us, it doesn't matter. Civilization can't work unless some of us are motivated to make the right choices and to follow through and to try and to make life better for things. So that is the point here of my of my discussion. I think it was, again, a brilliant, brilliant show, Westworld 1, season, season 1 and season 2. I urge you to watch it if you can handle the violence. But it's an important lesson for our society. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nuffham Siegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.